When I got here tonight, uh, Sister Wittenbach was laughing, and so I asked her what was so funny. She said, well, she said, we're singing a choir song tonight that is, that is a country western one, and we're dedicating to Brother Grant. So I'm glad you told me, otherwise I wouldn't have recognized it was country and western. You know, quite a few of us for, are from down south. We have uh, Brother Tinker's from Arkansas, the Hill family who just moved up here. They're from Arkansas. They're with us tonight. And Sister Carnes is from southern Missouri. Uh, Brother Washburn is from uh, southwestern Missouri. Is that right? Brother Johns is from Florida. Sister Johns is from Oklahoma. And Brother and Sister Gillum are from uh, southern, uh, southeastern Missouri. And Sister Wittenbach is from Louisiana. <laughs> and uh, she's not in here, though, is she? And uh, Brother Charlie is from Texas. Sister Grant's from Texas. Of course, I'm from Texas. You know, I went down to Texas not... Uh, we have anybody else from the south here? Sister Jeanette, where are you from? From Louisiana. Well, I didn't know that. I did not know that. Where are you from, Brother Henderson? <laughs> south Chicago. I, the, the waitress over at, over at Mark's... Is the, there's a girl over there from Kentucky, and I was trying to get her to come to church. Maybe some of you met her. Did anybody meet her over there from Kentucky? She's got a real accent. So she said, sound like you're from the south. And I said, yeah, from South Madison. <laughs> well, okay, and Mason, where are you from? Virginia. Virginia. Is that somewhere around the Mason-Dixon line? <laughs> south of Mason-Dixon. All right. That, all right. So you got a good name there, Mason. Anybody else from the south? Okay, where are you from, Sherry? Greenville, Mississippi. And here I was talking about dog days in Mississippi the other night. <laughs> Isn't that something? Didn't realize I had one of those Mississippi girls up here. Isn't that something? Talking about dog days. <laughs> we better let's skip that. Okay. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I just saw a little cute thing the other day. It's talking about puppy love. It said, don't you know that puppy love will lead to a dog's life? <laughs> I don't know what that's got to do with dog days. But <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I went to Texas about five years ago, four or five years ago. So when I came back, I didn't tell everybody, but I went over to Easttown and I bought a, a western hat, a big western hat. Then I went over to Famous Footwear and bought some boots. And so I came driving in here at the, the church with those boots and that hat on. And everybody thought I got them down in Texas, really. You know, I have seen more people wearing boots uh, around here than I saw in Texas. Now, the newer generation, like Charlie, the younger ones, see, they're, they're wearing boots down in Texas. When I grew up, not too many people wore boots. And they call guys like Charlie drugstore cowboys. 
because <laughs> preach it because everything they have they got out of the store. By the way, over at West East Town the other day, I saw a sign in one of the stores that says "Bowlegged Riding Britches for Straight-Legged Cowboys." So, in case you want to be a real guy, you know. No, I really didn't. <clears throat> we better get on with the preaching. Praise God and leave all this business alone, don't you think? Praise God. <clears throat> all right, isn't the Lord great? You know, I told the congregation this morning, I said, my, you really do look great. And not too long ago, I went someplace and it seemed like everybody in the congregation was ugly. Something, I'm not going to tell where it was. Then I've gone other places where it seemed like everybody in the congregation was just downright pretty. And this morning I made that statement, and I looked out tonight, and you know, I don't believe we got an ugly person in the building. Isn't that something? Not one. I mean, every, all the men are handsome. I mean, really, we got some handsome men around here. And the ladies are just beautiful. The little girls are just cute as bugs and rugs. And... Uh, Really, I mean, we've got a nice congregation. I'd like for you to stand tonight, if you would, for the reading of the Word of the Lord. Now, you don't feel any better about yourself because you knew that already. But you probably feel a whole lot better about the person near you. Praise God. Isn't the Lord great? Really is. God is so very good. So very good. I just count it such a great honor to be kin to you people. Isn't that something? We're all kin folks. Praise God. We have been washed in His blood, and we have become brothers and sisters into the body of Christ, which is such a great and wonderful feeling. From the book of Revelation, the second chapter, I would like to read from the letter written by the Apostle John to the church at Thyatira, Revelation 2.18. Revelation 2.18, And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. Because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to, to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And you may be seated. And I would like to read once again from verse 21. I gave and I gave her space to repent. And I gave her space to repent. 
And we want to talk tonight on the subject, space to repent. Space to repent. In a recent Sunday night message, I did some preaching through the book of Revelation. And I made mention that I thought the seven letters of the, to the churches at Asia parale- paralleled the seven parables of Matthew 13. I'd like to just make some reference to that once again, so if you'd like to turn back to Matthew 13. Now, if you will notice the letters that are written, there is a letter to Ephesus, number one. That's in chapter 2. A letter to Smyrna. A letter to Pergamos. And then a letter to Thyatira. Now, the fourth letter is to Thyatira. And I personally believe, and I use the word I personally believe, that it fits the parable of the mystery of the leaven. Verse 33 of Matthew 13, Another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is likened to leaven. And I did mention that I believe there were certain things in the Bible that you could use to compare with certain other things. There are things that you never use as a comparison to other things. Leprosy, an example of that, is compared to sin or sin to leprosy. And you never find a comparison in the scripture of leprosy with righteousness or righteousness with leprosy. Now I personally believe that the leaven that's spoken of here is false doctrine that enters into the church. Now a lot of people believe that this is speaking of the kingdom of God and how that righteousness prevails like leaven. Well, we have never found in the history of the world a particular time in which the world was predominantly Christian. That has never happened. And as far as I know, it will never happen until the millennium that, that Jesus sets up here on the face of this earth. When he will rule the world with a rod of iron. Now since I preached that message two or three weeks ago, I have had a multitude of questions asked about the millennium. I remember distinctly preaching a message about three years ago on the millennium. And I took it from Hebrews, the sixth chapter, tasting of the powers of the world to come. It happened to be that particular message that I preached that evening that Sister Marisa down and came to the altar and gave her heart to the Lord. Now maybe she doesn't even remember what I was preaching. But when she stood up and gave her testimony last Sunday night, I remember distinctly the message that I preached when she came and gave her heart to the Lord. I spoke on the millennium. When the millennium is set up on the face of the earth, a thousand years of peace in which the Lord will rule with a rod of iron. I believe 
that this will be a time in which the world will be predominantly Christ-like or Christian. And the ruling with a rod of iron doesn't mean that he has a fist that's clenched with a rod of iron in it. It simply means the power of choice is taken away. And man is not given the power to choose until the end of the millennium when the devil comes out of the bottomless pit to deceive the nations. Now, I had not intended to really give a, uh, an explanation of this, but, but predominantly I do not feel that the world will be Christian. I believe the gospel of the kingdom must be preached into all the world for witness before the end comes. And I'm not for sure when that will take place. It just might be that it has already taken place. You may say, well, then will the end come? Well, I think the Scripture is saying that has to occur first, and then the end come. And it just might be that we're living on borrowed time right now. Now, I personally believe that Jesus Christ is soon to return to this world for His church. Now, if you will notice the parable... The kingdom of heaven is likened to leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until the whole was leavened. Now, the church at Thyatira is described as having a prophetess. Her name is Jezebel. And Jezebel committed fornication with the ten kings of the earth and seduced servants to commit fornication with her, and she sacrificed things unto idols. Now you may say, well, does it say that she committed fornication with the ten kings of the earth? Not in the letter here. But I'd like to point out verse 22. It was Thyatira that was cast into the great tribulation. Now, I personally believe that this is the church of the dark ages. And that church still exists today. In Revelation 17, you will find that there is a false church. While she is not called Jezebel in Revelation 17, there is a description given of her. And of course... We know according to, to the letters that the church of Thyatira was an actual church that existed at the time of the writing of the letters. And Thyatira, geographically speaking, ceased and the church died. However, prophetically speaking, it was speaking of a church age, a particular time in history. And Thyatira was to have the Jezebel prophetess. And she was to seduce servants, commit fornication with the kings of the earth, and sacrifice things unto idols. The false church is mentioned in Revelation 17 
and we will just call your attention to that. And there came one of the seven angels, Revelation 7, 1, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying, Come unto me, come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was the name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. And so he begins to unfold the mystery. Now, if you will notice in verse 9 of Revelation 17, And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Okay. And then, of course, if you go down through there and read, you will find, uh, let's start reading with uh, verse uh, verse 15. And he said unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the great horse sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. In other words, this particular woman, the false church, will have power over many different kingdoms and many different people and nations. And verse 16, And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the woman or the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Now this is the ending, the consummation of, of the false church. Verse 17, For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill His will, and to agree and to give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. Verse 18, And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Now, uh, I personally think that that the city that's spoken having seven mountains is Rome. Now, some people feel it's Jerusalem, but Jerusalem so far has never had this type of power. And as far as I can see in the Bible prophecy, up until the time of the millennium, she will not be granted that power. But it's speaking of a false church that sits, that is a city that sits upon seven hills that has power over many nations and kindred and tongues. Now, if you will notice 
In chapter 13, the fourth parable, the Bible says, The kingdom of heaven is likened to leaven, which a woman took, and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. And I personally believe that the Jezebel that's spoken of in the prophetic letter that uh, is found uh, addressing or addressed to the church at Thyatira, the Jezebel that's spoken of there is the woman that took and she obscured the gospel. And she obscured the gospel by false doctrine. And all of a sudden, the entire world was plagued with false doctrine. Now, out of that great movement came the fifth parable, and then the sixth parable, the pearl of great price. Now, I had not intended on preaching... Uh, a message on prophecy tonight. But I wanted to give you a particular pattern in which I feel that God definitely does deal with man. Now you will notice that what happened to the church at Thyatira, she was cast into great tribulation. Now she was cast into great tribulation when she refused to hear the voice of God. There was a time in which the God gave her space to repent, even of her adulteress and, and her life of fornication. Her adulterous life and her life of fornication. God gave her space to repent. Now this basically is how God looks at sin. He considers sin to be sin. And all sin will send you to hell. And in the eyes of God, a sin is a sin. But you will find that when God begins to deal with sin, that there are certain categories in which He deals more treacherously with man than others. An example of that is an intentional sin. That simply means that a man is caught unaware. For some reason, the man is living for God. He's trying his best to do what's right. But all of a sudden, something bad comes out of him. Now, the man should have been alert. He should not have allowed it to happen. He should have examined himself. But through some weakness, he fell into some sin. It was not premeditated. He had not uh, given much thought to it. Maybe that just in a moment's time, something got uh, totally out of hand in his life, and he committed a sin. And after he thought about it, he considered it to be very horrible indeed. He went back to God. He fell on his face before the Lord, and he began to pray, and he began to seek the Lord and cry out to God for mercy, and of course God forgave him. Now I remember when I first started walking with God, 
Now, I'm not putting it that way to tell you that I live a life in which is untouched by iniquity. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that I believe since I first started walking with God, I have overcome a few things. But I remember when I first started walking with God, there were things that I promised God I would never do again. And I just vowed to God I would never do them again. And then I would find myself in a moment of weakness, falling into temptation, and I would do it again. I remember things that I even vowed to God that, you know, if I do this again, Lord, you can just take your Holy Spirit away from me. And don't touch me again. And all of a sudden I do the same thing again. I'm certainly glad God did not take my word and take his Holy Spirit away from me. But uh, he'd deal with me. Now we're talking about unintentional sin. Things that come upon an individual. Things that come out of you that you're not aware of. Now, God still holds you responsible. If uh, you had to commit sin then sin, as far as I could see, would not uh, be uh, charged to you. But sin is charged to you, and you're held accountable for it because you do things that you could have prevented and you could have stopped had you have wanted to. And you will find that when you're doing unintentional sin, that God seems to show more mercy to you over an extended period of time. Now we go from uh, unintentional sin to intentional sin. That simply means that you have read some things in the Bible. You know that it's wrong, but you don't give a whole lot of thought to it. You don't pray much about it. And uh, uh, you don't even really consider it to be that bad. But, uh, uh, you know, if you gave careful thought and if questions were to be asked, to you, you would understand that it would be wrong and perhaps would even admit it. But uh, uh, you just intentionally do what's wrong. You, you know that it's not right, but you don't consider it to be so wrong, so you just go ahead and do it anyway. Now you will find that that particular category of sin in the Bible, that when God does take action against a man, who is committing intentional sin, that his action is stronger against the individual than if the man is doing something unintentionally. Now, sometimes we even do things unintentionally. We don't even know it's wrong. And then all of a sudden, maybe we read in the Bible something, and we say, hey, I ought not be doing this. God forbid that I would do it again. And so... We promise God that we don't, but because that the body is so prone to habit, and we are creatures of habit, we just go back sometimes and do it without giving any thought. Then, of course, as I said before, uh, the man who's given thought to it, but he does it anyway. When God takes action against the man, the action is always stronger against the intentional than the unintentional. Now we leave that and we go to another category in which I call premeditated sin. Now premeditated sin, you know it's horrible, you know it's wrong, you know you ought not do it, 
and you know that it might cost you your soul, yet you go ahead and do it anyway. Now, there are a lot of young people, especially young people, that enter into this category. They voluntarily, without hesitation, without reservation, they commit sin even after they have contemplated knowing that they're jeopardizing their soul. To him that knoweth to do good, and doeth not to him it is sin. The scripture says if we do that which we are in doubt of, to us it is sin. Now that simply means that we're doing something, and perhaps we don't even have a knowledge as to whether it be right or wrong, but inside of our mind, inside of our heart, there is God that's speaking to us, And so as a result, that conscience continues to nag away, and we fail to check it out in the Bible to find out if it's right or wrong. So we continue to do it, not really knowing whether it's right or wrong, only using our conscience as a guide. But something inside makes us doubt as to whether we should do that particular thing or not. Now the reason why that the Bible says that if you do that which you are in doubt of, to you it is sin. The reason why God automatically classifies an action like that as being sinful, whether it's a violation of the Word of God or not, He still says it's sinful. The reason why is because that you are proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are willing to jeopardize your relationship with God Almighty, the Savior of the world, the Redeemer of your soul, He who took iniquity away from you and put your feet on the solid rock, the foundation, the church. You're proving to God that you're willing to jeopardize that relationship. And God is saying, Amen, who is willing to jeopardize His relationship with the Almighty, Whether or not what he's doing is sinful is immaterial. If he's doing it and he's in doubt of it, I will charge him as a transgressor simply because he was willing to jeopardize such a relationship. Now, a lot of people fall into this particular category. And you will find that premeditated sin... That when God takes action against it, He takes very strong action against it. Now, continual premeditated sin leads to the killing of your conscience. Now, in 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter, verse 1, Paul begins to write, and this is what he says to his son in the faith, who was a young minister, Timothy. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Now you will notice one thing about the church of Thyatira. The prophetess Jezebel had a seducing spirit. She had a seducing spirit, a conniving spirit, a very appealing spirit. Now the Bible says the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart. Now when the Bible speaks that the Spirit speaketh expressly, that simply means with strong expression. The Spirit sounds out so that men will not mistake it. 
that they will understand it. There are times that I have to admit in my Christian walk that I'm not really for sure if God has spoken to me or not. Now, generally speaking, I believe that all Christians know the voice of God. And you may say, well, Brother Grant, I'm a Christian and I don't know the voice of God. I reminded the words of Jesus when he said, My sheep know my voice, and a stranger they will not follow. And I believe that if you claim to be a Christian, and you don't really know the voice of God, that you need to strengthen your relationship with God until you are able to discern the voice of God when God speaks to you. He said, My sheep know my voice, and another they will not follow. You see, we claim to be the people of the Spirit. We claim to be the people of His name. And yet, a lot of times, some of us do not know the voice of God when God speaks to us. Well, we need to strengthen our relationship. But John, Paul is saying, the Spirit speaks with strong impressions. The Spirit speaks with strong expression. God wants you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that He is labeling certain things as being extremely sinful. Some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Now notice this, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Now, I don't know if you, uh, uh, maybe we have some men here who took uh, agriculture in, in school. How many of you took agriculture in school? You ever been around with the dehorned cows? How many of you have been around? Man, I'll tell you, that is a bloody, bloody job. Uh, I still remember seeing some cows dehorn. In fact, I've helped a little bit. And, well, there was a time which we just caught the cow and we just took a, hand saw and sawed a horn off. Now you saw it off and you know what happens? It just it just starts squirting blood all over the place. And uh, <clears throat> that's what happens. And then of course uh, later on they, they came out with a reamer. I don't know what they're doing now. We put rubber bands around their horns for a long time and their horns would drop off. You had a little apparatus that spread out and you had a strong round rubber band and you put it on the cow's horn and and the life of the horn just ceased because of the tightness of the band and after a while the horn just fell off now maybe they still do that do they brother bill they still do that and then uh then they came out with a reamer they cut them off and then they burn them off but when we used to saw them off with a handsaw especially out on the farm we took the old smoothing irons you you remember the smoothing irons how many of you remember the smoothing irons the so you don't know what we're talking about, do you? You take an old, you take an old iron, and of course it, it's not electric, and it doesn't have any water inside. It's metal all the way. It's not a steam iron, and uh, you just simply put it on a, a bed of coals, and and you get it hot. And uh, I remember when we used to iron with smoothing irons. We call them smoothing irons because it smoothed out the the clothes. You know, we take the we take the the white shirts like this one and. And uh, we would uh, wash them in a wash pot and uh, get it out. And uh, uh, listen, I remember the days when we didn't even have a ringer washer. And uh, we would uh, cut up, we made homemade soap 
and we cut up that soap, lye soap, and you put it in the wash pot, and you washed your white clothes first, and uh, later on you washed the men's work clothes, and you didn't change the water, see, because the white clothes, you know, they just had a few little spots on them, and and uh, you cut up this lye soap, and you built it. You know, you've seen the great big old wash pots, haven't you? And uh, then uh, uh, you take the this Niagara starch. At that time, it was in powder form, and you put it in boiling water. And you just boiled it, and then you let it cool off, and it got thick scum on top with that gelatin stuff. And you peel all that off, and then you dip the clothes down in it after you'd rinsed them with the, the clear water and bluing. They used to put bluing in the water. And it makes the cl- clothes, takes the yellow out of the clothes. And, and uh, then you'd, uh, uh, you'd, you'd wring all the starch out and you'd hang up the clothes on line. Now, when they'd dry, they'd stand up by themselves. <laughs> Wouldn't they? You remember that? Thank the Lord for the, for the wash and wear stuff. <laughs> really, because you're, you know, you're, oh, you take a hot day and you put on a, you put on a, Put on a white shirt and it's stiff as a board. Oh, it was tough and and around the collar, man, you man, it was it was it was bad. You know, you, that's when you couldn't bend the colors down, Hardy. You almost had to bend them down and 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 take and, and button them while they were down. You know, slip your collar underneath. Uh, uh, they were just hard. I mean, stiff as a board. And then of course you sprinkle the clothes and you take the smoothing irons. You got two or three of them and you iron with it. You take it out and let it cool off to a particular temperature, and you iron with it. Now, when we dehorned cows, that's what we did. We took, our, well, we didn't iron clothes, but uh, we had all the coals, and you put the smoothing irons in. We literally sawed the cow's horn off with a handsaw and took the smoothing iron, the hot iron, I've been mean hot from the fire, and we ran across her horn. where that, that And the reason why we did it is because it would sear... That horn so that she wouldn't bleed to death. And the searing would stop the flow of blood. Now, believe it or not, that's exactly what Paul is talking about. He's saying that if you continue to sin willfully, that that particular sin that is done on a premeditated, continual basis will sear your conscience, and stop the flow of Christ's blood that takes away sin and iniquity. And so as a result, we become calloused and we become hard inside. Now when a person continues to commit sin over and over and over, whether it is unintentional, whether it's intentional, whether it's premeditated, and they continue to do it on a continual basis, you will find that right away they get in trouble with God. God begins to deal with them and deal with them and deal with them and deal with them and deal with them. But you see, way back in the early chapters of the book of Genesis, when God looked down upon the world that was full of sin and full of iniquity, God looked down and told Noah, Noah! I want you to build an ark. And it gave him the size of it and told him just how to build it and such and what he wanted to do with it. And then he told Noah, My spirit shall not always strive 
with man. Now strive with man here. My spirit will not always wrestle with man. My spirit will not always work with man. My spirit will not always uh, uh, go against man's behavior. And so God was saying that when man is sinning on a continual basis and he keeps going and he keeps going and he keeps going, God told Noah to preach the gospel. Now in the book of Genesis, it does not state that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, but Peter tells us that Noah, the eighth from Adam, was a preacher of righteousness. And so he preached that the world would be destroyed by a flood. And while he was preaching and people were listening, they were continually, voluntarily sinning. And so God says, My Spirit will not always wrestle with you. My Spirit will not always strive with you. I will always continue to deal with you. That if you keep on going the way that you're going, and you don't voluntarily yield to me and to the flow of my blood, I will allow that sin to come and sear and stop the flow of blood that causes righteousness in a man's heart. And you will find that there are a lot of people to Today, without giving much thought, that that's exactly what happens. Now, I've explained to you Hebrews 10, 26. I think I've probably spoken to you on that particular subject many times, but it would just be good for us if we would uh, just turn there just for a moment. Let's take a look at Hebrews 10, verse 26. The Bible says, Verse 25, we'll read that. Uh, Not forsaken the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You know, Jesus is soon to come, and coming to church is a very important thing. Why is coming to church an important thing? Because you are continually exhorted. In other words, you are reminded of what you need to do to be saved. For some reason, people forget. I would forget if I didn't come to church. And you would forget if you didn't come to church. And so he says, now, this is what you need to do. And he says, so much the more as you see the day approaching. In other words, when you find that uh, the signs of times are being fulfilled, you need to really give careful thought to your life. Why? Because there are a lot of seducing spirits. There are a lot of lies of hypocrisy in the world. There are a lot of false doctrines in our world. Brother O'Neill spoke of that very plainly and forthrightly to you this morning. There's just about everything in the world that you would want to hear. You name it, you can hear it. It's here among us. Now verse 26, For if we sin willfully, after we have received a knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. Now, if that scripture is saying that if you sin willfully, then you cannot be saved, then I would doubt any of us could be saved. But the context of the scripture is willful sin. If we continue to sin over and over and over, It doesn't make any difference what we're doing if we know that it's wrong and we don't take action against it. 
Then what happens? There is a searing of the conscience that stops the flow of the blood of Jesus Christ. And my friend, His blood, as powerful as it is, as pure as it is, as holy as it is, as much as it was meant to take away sin, it was not designed to purify and cleanse the heart of an intentional sinner. A man who is continually sinning and he does not in any way fall upon his knees and make things right with God. So if you're doing something tonight that you know that's wrong, it doesn't make any difference if you're repenting over a thousand other things. You must go ahead and repent over those But the one thing that you're not repenting over and you're willfully sinning in that area, the blood of Jesus Christ was not designed to cover that sin and will not cover that sin. And that sin will sear you like a hot iron that sears the dehorned cow that stops the flow of blood. It will also stop Christ's flow of blood in your heart and cause you to stand someday before God with iniquity in your soul. To repent. While Jezebel was doing a lot of things that she should not have done, God gave her space to repent. Why do you think Elijah stood there before the congregation of the household of Israel and declared that it would not rain on the earth for three and a half years? Why do you think that God allowed that prophet to prophesy the way he did to the household of Israel? Because he wanted to give Israel, along with Ahab the king and Jezebel, the queen or the prophetess of Israel, chance to repent. And it doesn't make any difference to God how stooped in sin you are, how deep in iniquity you are, how bound up in drugs you may be, how involved in sex you may be, how involved in alcohol you may be. You may have murdered somebody. You may have done the worst thing that you could possibly think of on the face of the earth. My friend, it does not make any difference if you possess the willpower to fall down before God and say, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. The blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse you and take that away. Praise God. Let's lift our hands and thank Him for the blood. But God said, my spirit will not always strive with man. The unintentional sin leads to intentional sin, and intentional sin leads to premeditated sin, and premeditated sin leads to continual premeditated sin that leads to blaspheming. Now, in John, 1 John, the 5th chapter, verse 16, it's not necessary that you turn there. We'll consider other scriptures. But John speaks of a sin that is a sin unto death. You will also notice that Jesus spoke. And when he spoke, he said that there was such a thing as sinning against the Holy Ghost. And he said, now, you can be 
forgiven if you sin against the Son of Man. And you can be forgiven if you do this and if you do that. And of course you know that they sinned against Jesus Christ. They sinned against His Word. Jesus stood there on the cross, or I say stood there, He hung there on the cross. And what did He say? He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But you see the Holy Ghost that makes alive, that quickens the inner man and quickens the conscience. If you continue to sin against it, after a while, my friend, that sin that diametrically opposes the Holy Ghost will seal the conscience to the very point that God's voice will be so obscured that you don't even know the voice of God when God speaks to you. You know, I think that every man should have a period of time set aside in his life on, uh, uh, in, on a regular basis in which he goes before God and he examines his heart. You see, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians uh, the 11th chapter, when he begins to talk about communion, he said, uh, before you take communion, he said, what you need to do, he said, you need to carefully examine yourself. For if you don't examine yourself, and if you drink of that blood, and eat of that flesh, unworthily, you heap damnation unto yourself. For this cause, he said, many among you are sick, and many of you are weak, and many of you sleep. And there is such a thing as closing your spiritual eyes when your faith can't see anymore. And closing your spiritual ears in which you can't hear anymore. And then, of course, as a result, you become a walking dead man. The only difference between you and the people in the graveyard is that we haven't had your burial yet. But otherwise, you're walking on the face of the earth and you have literally shut out the voice of God to where God can speak to you. And friend, if you don't think it's possible, you read your Bible and you'll run across many, many cases in which people could not find God. It was said uh, in the... The book of Hebrews uh, concerning Esau, lest there be some fornicator as Esau, that for one morsel of meat would sell his birthright. The Bible goes on to say that though he sold his birthright, and he was sorry of it, that he sought repentance carefully with tears, and yet he found it not. That simply means that he sold out to the devil and to evil forces, and he realized it was wrong, but somehow he couldn't muster up enough will in his mind and in his heart to go back to God and say, God, forgive me and change his action. The voice of God was dead in his soul because he had seared his conscience. Now we have a whole lot of people that fit in the category of just plain premeditated sin. They do things that they know that's not right. They plot things to get even with people. And they know it's not right, but they, what is all that leading to? Friend, that's leading to blaspheming. Sinning a sin that is indeed a sin unto death. Now, if you would turn me to Proverbs the 29th chapter verse 1, there is a proverb that's spoken there concerning a condition like this. He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. In other words, cast into tribulation. Now, there is a picture found in the book of Judges. 
Now, we would not have time to go all the way through the book of Judges. But if you turn to the book of Judges, you will find that the book of Judges, as far as I can see, the book of Judges covered a period of time of about 400 and, or 305 years. Now, this particular book, you could consider it to be the book of failure in the Bible. Now, when I say the book of failure in the Bible, I'm not talking about God failing man. I'm talking about man failing God. You see, Israel came out of Egypt. Then, right after they got in the promised land, they forgot about the Redeemer. And they forgot about the Holy One of Israel. They forgot about the One that allowed them to go through the Red Sea. They forgot about the One who allowed them to wear shoes for 40 years and garments that did not wear out. They forgot about the one who rained down manna from heaven. They forgot about the one who turned the bitter water sweet. They forgot about the one who allowed water to flow through the rock and water them on a daily basis. They forgot about the one who spread open the river Jordan and they walked across on dry land. Friend, they forgot about the wonder worker, the miracle worker that brought them out of Egypt into the promised land. And so as a result, in the book of Judges, you will find that the pattern of the book of Judges goes like this. Israel sinned and God uh, punished them. Israel repented and then, of course, God forgave them. And the pattern goes over and over and over. Israel sinned and God punished them. Israel repented and God forgave them. Israel sinned. God punished them. Israel repented and God forgave them. But friend, when you pass the book of Judges and you go on into the book of Kings, you will find that the northern kingdom uh, that, that went into Assyrian captivity 120 years before the two tribes of the south, you will find that what happened to them, they reached the period of time in which they sinned. God punished them, but then they didn't cry out for forgiveness anymore. And so as a result, God continued to allow tribulation to come to the household of Israel. And tribulation came, and tribulation came, and sorrow came upon the household of Israel. And finally, you will find that the Assyrians came down and swallowed them up, and they were no more a people called by His name anymore. And Jeremiah prophesies in his book. And oh, he weeps before the household of Israel. And this is what he says. For as a girdle cleaveth to the lords of a man, so shall I also cause to cleave unto me the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, that they may be unto me for a people, for a name, for a praise, and for a glory. God wanted to bless the people that were sinning. But friend, he gave them space to repent even after he allowed tragedy to come upon them and yet they would not repent. And so as a result they ceased to be a people that honored His name. They ceased to be a people that had praise upon their lips. They ceased to be a people that gave glory to Him. And so God turned His back upon Israel and said, because that they have seared their conscience, then will I no longer be their deliverer and their God. They can go the way that they want to go and God allowed them to be swallowed up by the Assyrians. I know tonight that I'm preaching to people that fit in this category. God catches you in trouble and you repent. What happens then after you repent? Then He begins to bless you again. 
But you just constantly flow back into the same pattern over and over and over. You go back into sin. Then He allows some crisis to come. Then you cry out, God, forgive me. Have mercy on me. Don't you know my name, Lord? Here I am. With a gentle arms, He reaches down and delivers you. But then you forget about Him again. And you go back into sin. He punishes you again. You cry out again, God, here I am, I'm in trouble. And He reaches down with His love and mercy. He forgives you. But you see, you just can't stay in that syndrome. Because one of these days, what will happen? God will rain down or sprinkle judgment upon you. And because that you've been in the syndrome for so long, and because that the blood has not meant much to you, then you fail to repent. And bitterness steps in. Oh, let me tell you something, friend. When the book of Hebrews speaks of lest any root of bitterness spring up in you and therefore defiling the soul, a bitter person cannot be saved. Just can't be. And bitterness is a a fruit of a non-forgiving spirit. And you can't be saved with a bitter spirit. I want to tell you something about the country we live in. The country we live in right now is in the book of Judges. This is the year of the Bible. I hope we won't forget that. You see, our president said this is the year of the Bible. You know what happens to us? By and large, this has been our pattern now for 10, 15 years. We have some major crisis that comes. What is that? It's the sprinkling of God's judgment upon His people. You'll find that's what He does. And then all of a sudden we realize we're in trouble. Looks like our fuel supplies are going to run out. And so we all gather in our churches of all denominations. And we all band together and say, God, have mercy upon the land of the free and the home of the brave. Take us back to the old days and give us the liberty that we had. God smiles upon us with a great blessing of prosperity and forgives us. And we go right back in the same crises again. America is in the book of Judges. But if I know where we are as much as I feel I know where we are, we're moving out of the book of Judges into the book of Chronicles and Kings where Israel, when judgment came, did not repent. Oh, God forbid. He being often reproved, hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. And whether it be a preacher behind a pulpit, whether it be a father in a home, a mother in a home, 
a Sunday school teacher in a class, a co-worker on a job, or the Holy Spirit that speaks to you in the blackness of the night. Friend, instruction from the righteous is never to be taken lightly. Never. Never, never. We're coming into a very sober moment of our message. A very, very sober moment. The book of Psalms says, Whosoever confesses his sins shall find mercy, but whosoever covereth them shall not prosper. While we may be caught time and time again committing things that we know that's not right, oh, let's stay tender and let's keep trying. Let's keep finding a place at the altar and find our place nestled in the warm arms of a Redeemer that loves us. But let's never be guilty of just sitting back and pretending while we know inside things are not right. God gave me this message tonight for somebody who would sit under the sound of my voice. I remember a young man that I went to school with at Gaston School. This is where I went to grade school up until the time I went into junior high. He and I are very close friends. And then we moved on the south side of Henderson out of town. And I started riding the Henderson bus going to junior high and later high school there. Also, he moved into Henderson with his folks and he attended the same high school that I attended. Just so happened uh, that uh, I started going to a little country church with my mother when I was a teenager. And uh, this boy, to my amazement's grandfather, attended that same church and he started attending. Used to ride our bikes on Saturday, Sunday afternoon. All Sunday afternoon we'd ride up and down the creek banks. We would go out to the well and draw water out of the well and pour on an old clay hill out there just to see how slippery we could make it. Slide and spin in the mud. Had a great time together. We went on through high school and then I did not attend church for a good long while. And he didn't either. Then I started back to church about the time that... uh, I got married a little bit before I got married. He started back. I got married about the same time he got married. I remember in Henderson, Texas, both of us praying at the altar. I remember giving my heart to the Lord. We were baptized about the same time. He was baptized a few weeks after me. But uh, just like me, he had some things he didn't want to give up. And so he'd pray at the altar. I remember talking to him. His name was Hyman, Hyman St. Clair. I said, Hyman, you know, you really need to give your heart to God. We, we talk about some of those things. He could play guitar and sing and just a real talented boy. Well, it just so happened that uh, we both moved to Houston, Texas about the same time. 
And all these things that happened, it was just uh, almost like a coincidence. We moved to Houston about the same time. And, of course, him being acquainted with the pastor in Henderson, uh, started attending a church in, in Houston where the pastor had moved. Our pastor moved to Houston about the time we moved, a little bit before, actually. So we ended up in the same church with the same pastor. But the thing about it is he, he still had never given his heart to God, never received the Holy Ghost. Oh, he'd come up the altar and cry and weep, and you talk about really getting a touch of the Spirit. But then he'd, he'd go back, and he just wouldn't give his heart to God. And God would deal with him. God would deal with him. And I still remember uh, talking to him and trying to get him to come. My pastor contacted me and said, uh, you know, John, you need to go over and see Hyman. This time he had two kids, I think, maybe three, two or three kids. He said, you need to go over and see him, encourage him to come to church. I promised Brother Fuller that I would do that. Well, he came on back on his own and prayed at the altar and wept and cried. And then he'd go right back into sin. He'd get into trouble, financial trouble. He'd run back in, pray a while, and things would get good. And he'd leave the church again. Just a constant pattern. It just persisted. I remember one one. Night, my pastor called me and said, uh, I want you to come to the house. So I drove over there and I said, What's the deal? He said, Hyman's in the hospital. What happened to him? He said, Involved in a very bad truck wreck. What the deal was that he just played around with God too long. God dealt with him. I talked with him. Brother Fuller talked with him. He'd always, Yeah, I know, I know. But the world had such a hold on him. He wouldn't give it up. The truth of the matter is, he was just living a miserable life. He wasn't enjoying the world nor the church. But he he was all set, all set to have a great Christmas. And so as a result, when he came over the freeway with that big truck, over one freeway, down among another one, over at a place in Houston called Spaghetti, Roads, where all the freeways come together. You got a place in Chicago like that. Uh, he came over driving a little bit too fast in the truck because he was trying to get park the truck and get back home for Christmas. And right down in the bottom, where the freeway went down, there was a car down there that had a flat, and a policeman has light on. And Hyman went over the hill. He was a little tired. He hit the brakes. The tr the truck jackknifed on him. And threw him through the air over this freeway down on top of another one. And he hit on his head. When I got to the hospital, his mother, that I knew very well, located me before I got to the room. And she ran up. She threw her arms around me. She wept on my shoulder. She said, John, don't let Hyman die said, he just recently talked to me about not being ready to meet God. But he also recently said, but mother, it's so hard to repent. So hard. And I remember when she told me that, my mind flashed back to some of the times we were praying at the altar. 
Oh, he'd just be praying away, and all of a sudden, he'd just there would, a tenseness would come upon him. I knew what was happening inside. A million things that pop up in his mind that he did not want to give up. And he would literally wrestle. What was happening? The Spirit of God was striving with him. Wrestling with him. Pulling. Wooing. And Hyman was not submitting. She said, my son is lost. John is lost. He's in a coma. The doctors say he cannot live because his, his brain is hemorrhaged so. I remember walking into that hospital room where his wife was. And there's his mother and Pastor Fuller and I went up and I lay hands on him and prayed for him. I left that room and went down to the hospital chapel. I fell upon my knees and said, God, I want you, Lord, to save Hyman. He's been my friend for a long time. I remember how, Lord, we used to sit in a youth class and we used to cut up and make fun. Everything the teacher used to teach on, we'd sit back and sneer. I know what it's like to be a young person. I know what it's like to have troubles and trials. I used to sit back and make fun of the pastor. and I used to think my mother's religion was so corny. I know what it's all like. And it was going through my mind, Lord. But here I am, Lord, you save me. God, save him. And my voice rang up through the hospital. God, save him. When I left there, that night his mother came and threw her arms around me again and said, John, would you pray tonight? Whatever it takes, don't, don't let him slip out into eternity lost without God. So Sister Grant and I went to our knees and spent a good portion of that night in prayer. The next day I got up and went to Bible school and could hardly hold my eyes open, so tired and weary. But while I was studying that day, sometime in the course of the day, Hyman slipped out into eternity. Now with all the opportunities and all the praying at the altar, of all the association with church, why? God gave him space to repent. Well, I don't want to stand here and pass judgment on a man. I'm trying to point out something that is so very, very critical in your relationship with God. When you come into the presence of the Lord, and when God begins to deal with you about your life, you cannot take it lightly. You cannot afford. I gave her space to repent, and she repented not. Therefore, I will do what? Cast her into great tribulation. Israel sinned. God punished them. 
Israel repented, God forgave. Israel sinned, God punished. Israel repented, God forgave. The pattern persisted for 305 years, but then it changed like this. Israel sinned, God punished. Israel kept on sinning, and God kept on punishing. Israel kept on sinning, and God turned his back and says, I will now allow her to go into great trouble. And as you stand tonight with me, perhaps we have somebody here who has never really given their heart to God. Oh, let me tell you something. Tonight is the night. If God is dealing with you, and you're just pushing it out, you can play all kinds of, na- uh, of, of games, mind games, with God. But you're only kidding yourself. You're not kidding God. Some people sometimes they can conjure up things in their mind and they just kind of close their eyes and, oh, I know. I know all these tricks. I used to do it. But you see, those things didn't really affect God's relationship with me as much as it just affected myself. You know, I knew how to make it look like I wasn't convicted. I would just sit nonchalantly and count the boards in the ceiling while people were weeping and crying. I knew how to do all those things. I knew how to greet the preacher at the front door with a straight face. And he was thinking, doesn't God ever deal with them? Well, the truth of the matter is he he did. But I was just ignoring it. I wanted to be Mr. Tuffy. See? Well, one day, I gave my heart to God. I wish I could have said that of my friend. But it didn't happen that way. And who knows? It may not happen that way for you. But now is time and space to repent. God does not bind himself with you for tomorrow. But only for this moment. And while his spirit is literally striving with you, would you come and give your heart to the Lord? On either side of the pulpit, there's a place to pray. If you've grown cold in God, why don't you step out and come and give yourself to the Lord? Why don't you come on right now? If you've been doing something that you know is not right, And you haven't been asking God to forgive you. And you know you're on dangerous ground. Why don't you come on right now and give your heart to God?
If you've been rebelling against some commandment or some authority in your life and you know it's not right, why don't you come on right now? Come on right now. Here are sincere people. Will they sin tomorrow? I don't know. But I'll say that their repentant attitude tonight will have a whole lot to do with how God deals with them tomorrow. You see, there are certain things you will find in the Bible that God tolerated for a long time. Then there were certain other things not so long. There were certain other things that God says, I never will tolerate at all. So I'm not here to name your involvement as much as to give you an opportunity that whatever is between you and God that you can truthfully come and kneel and say God forgive me Lord let me start all over God wash my soul clean with your blood don't sear my heart and stop the flow that cleanses. The altar's full, but there's still room for people to pray. Right around the steps here, there's a place. Come on right now, would you? Come on and give your heart to God. Come on and surrender your all to the Lord. Come on and fall before His face. Come and seek Him right now. I'm not saying that there will be no tomorrow for you. I do not hold the key to destiny. Only God does. But it just might be that the key really is in your hand. And how you respond tonight will determine how your relationship will be tomorrow. I'm not trying to just scare you to the altar. But I am trying to paint a picture that's real. A picture that comes out of the pages of the past. It was so important that God put it down in writing. And men have been preaching about it for years. It's got to mean a lot to God. So why don't you come? There's still room. I still feel that somebody needs to step out right now. Somebody's not submitting to God. Somebody's not hearing the voice of the Lord. Somebody's resisting his hand. Somebody's striving with him. Why don't you come on now and give your heart to God? Would you come? Would you come? Would you come? Some of your sisters come and gather around this lady. Others come and find somebody to pray with. Praise God, praise God, praise God. And there's still room for you to come if you want to. Oh, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah.